A story is told of a small southern church where a new fresh-faced pastor arrived. And on his very first Sunday morning, as the service began, he asked one of his old deacons to open the service in prayer. Well, this wrinkled old man stood creaking in the knees as he did before loudly proclaiming, Lord, I hate Lord. The pastor keeping his head bowed, looked up and thought, what's this about, right? He continued, Lord, and I hate buttermilk. Pastor's beginning to think, I picked the wrong guy to pray on this first Sunday. Old man continues, and you know, Lord, I'm not a big fan of flour either. And the pastor's thinking, man, I have asked a senile, senile old man to pray, and this has gone horribly wrong on my very first Sunday. He's beginning to think, how can I get myself out of this situation when the man continued, but Lord... After you mix them all together in the oven, I just love biscuits. Biscuits. Help us to realize, he said, when life gets hard, when things come up that we don't like, whenever we don't understand what you're doing, that we need to wait and see what it is that you are making. And hasn't that been the theme of of Joseph's life. Haven't we seen that that's been so true for him? We've taken a a series of disgusting ingredients, events that are each as painful and as hard as the last, and then we've mixed them together with some anger, some betrayal, some discord, and voila, the Lord has made biscuits. He has worked it all together for good. And we've been fighting to believe, aren't we? fighting to believe this morning that the same is true for us. That God didn't just do this for Joseph, but that God does this. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. For you and I this morning, there is hope in God's sovereignty and in his providence. Well, All this talk of biscuits is perhaps a little insensitive as we approach this chapter, because do you remember that the context is one of severe famine? I'm not sure I myself really know what it's like to be truly hungry. Maybe maybe you do. I I often say that I'm truly hungry. I use exaggerated statements like, oh, I'm, I'm starving, but I don't think I've really ever been close to the reality. But Jacob and his family have lived a different story. Famine has gripped the land of Canaan, and the shadow of death is now hanging over the entire clan. Men weak from atrophied muscles have to groan as they stand to be about their work. Women with dry and uh, cracked skin feel lightheaded as they attack their duties. Children who are normally vibrant and full of life sit in apathy as this famine takes its toll. And so we can imagine the relief, and perhaps only imagine the relief, in verse 16 of chapter 45. Pharaoh hears that Joseph has been reunited with his brothers. This is the passage that we looked at last week. And in gratitude to Joseph for how his kingdom has been blessed through Joseph, remember it was Joseph who interpreted the dream that foretold the famine was coming, and then Joseph laid the plans to ensure that Egypt would have food for the duration of the famine. So out of gratitude to Joseph for all his work, Pharaoh now extends an invitation. He invites the entire family to come and live in the shelter and provision of Egypt. 
So see there in verse 18, he offers them the best of the land and assures them that they can eat of the fat of the land. Then in verse 19, he tells them that they need only bring themselves, men, women, and children. Everything else will be provided. It's an offer that's too good to be true, an offer that's certainly too good to refuse. Jacob and his family will go from famine to feasting. It's an amazing reversal. And so in verse 1 of chapter 46, you see it there, Jacob and the whole family pack up to leave. This bedraggled caravan smile at the thought that they'll soon be part of Pharaoh's entourage. They set out from Hebron and arrive at a place called Beersheba, which was on the normal route from Canaan where they are on their way to Egypt. But it's an important moment. In the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, you may have seen it, there's this moment where Sam tells Frodo, this is it. If I take one more step, I'll be the farthest from home I've ever been. It's a moment whereby he knows that passing this particular spot marks a decisive break, a break from the past and a leap now into an unknown future. And that's what's happening for Jacob here. He's about to make a break with his past as he moves on from Beersheba. Why? Well, famine to feasting sounds fabulous, but it involves going in what really feels to be the wrong direction. Out of Canaan, out of the promised land, and into Egypt. Since Abraham, God's people had waited with an eager sense of anticipation for that time when they would be brought into the promised land. This land of great physical and spiritual significance where God would be their God and they would be his people. And so now that they're finally there, surely it doesn't seem right that they would now leave. Jacob is understandably nervous and so he hesitates. And in response to his hesitation, the Lord appears. See it there in verse 3? In a vision with this word of assurance, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid, he says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. You see what the Lord's saying? He's saying, I understand that this doesn't make sense, but trust me, it's all part of my plan. I want you to leave the promised land. I want you to go to Egypt. And what you'll find is that once you're in Egypt, your family is going to explode. There are going to be Israelites everywhere. And then, in my timing, I will bring you back out of Egypt to this promised land. No longer as a kind of ragtag collection of nomads, but as a great and mighty nation. But it's surprising, isn't it? Uh, It's strange. It seems a little weird how odd of God to lead his people out of the promised land. You know, we often celebrate the exodus, this momentous moment in Israelite history where God performs miracle after miracle before leading the people out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery, out of oppression, out from the bondage that they'd experienced there. And we often celebrate that moment, but we, what we don't so often do is remember that, yeah, God took them out of Egypt, but God also put them in Egypt. It's kind of that awkward part of our family history that we prefer just not to mention, right? That, yeah, he took them out of Egypt, but he also put them in Egypt in the first place. And yes, he would bring them out, but not for some 400 years. Generation after generation of Israelites were born and then died in Egypt. And later generations suffered under the slavery and oppression of this brutal regime. Leaving the promised land to go to Egypt is a a strange moment in Israelite history. It's not one that we expect. Which takes us to our main point for today. We've said again and again throughout the series that God is at work for your good. That God is at work for my good. And, And he is. We can know for sure. We can know for certain that God is at work for the good of his children. But Our passage today reminds us we don't always know how. Here's the point. God is at work for your good, but probably not in the way you expect. God is at work for your good, but probably not in the way you expect. Jacob was living in the land of promise. With his surviving children, he's blessed with dozens of descendants. He has met with God and he has no reason to believe that God's promises won't in fact come true in his life. But he would never have expected that these promises would involve his family leaving the promised land in order to be brought back into it later as a great nation. But that's exactly what God did. It reminds me of Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You and I are with Jacob, and that we can't always comprehend exactly what it is that God is up to. He will fulfill his promise to be good to us, but probably not in the way we expect. He is not a predictable God. He is not a tame lion. God is at work for your good, but probably not in the way you expect. Now, two applications for us this morning that flow from this important principle. The first one is simply this. Because of this truth, if you think you know what God is doing in your life, just be careful. Okay? If you think you know what God is doing in your life, just be careful. Hold on to it lightly. Uh, Don't be too dogmatic about it. See, this is often how we end up being disillusioned with God. We think he's working in this way, and then we make all sorts of assumptions that he's doing this in, in order that I'll be able to do this, that, and the next thing. And then when the scenario that we've created in our minds falls apart, we feel like, oh, where's God? Where, where, where is the Lord? Has he, has he let me down? Well, well, no, you've just got a little ahead of him. <laughs> Hold it lightly if you think that you know what he is doing. Otherwise, we end up disillusioned with him. And I think we do this kind of thing all the time. One of our pastoral interns tells the great story of how he, he graduated college and there were three things that he needed. 
uh, for his life to be complete, right? He needed a job, he needed a car, and he needed, thirdly, a girlfriend, okay? This was the promised land. Well, lo and behold, within a few months, he had all three, and he thought, I have made it. I have made it to the land of promise. This is as good as it gets, until within the next six weeks, his girlfriend broke up with him, and no joke, his car broke down. So he finds himself walking to work, (laughs) thinking, what's God doing here? This wasn't the plan. Things aren't coming together as I anticipated presumptions about what he's doing get us ahead of the Lord and often end up leaving us feeling disillusioned. And we do this all the time, perhaps for our seniors, is that you really feel the Lord is going to take you to a particular college and then you don't get in and you wonder, well, what God, what's God doing with my life? Sometimes it's when you're, you're looking for a job and you manage to get an interview through what seems to be a kind of providential set of circumstances, but then you don't get the job. Or perhaps you're really looking forward to being married and you're in a great relationship. Or you are married and you're enjoying your marriage, but then the relationship turns sour and things fall apart and you wonder, Lord, what, 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 you're, not, you're not at work in my life anymore. There's a thousand ways and a thousand days in which we have hopes and expectations that seem to fall through at the last moment. And it's easy for us to thank God, what are you up to in all of this? Is that where you find yourself this morning, maybe presuming you know what God is doing or perhaps feeling disillusioned because the scenario you hope for hasn't come to pass, well, we just want to be careful. God is at work for your good, but we don't know how. Our God is not predictable. He is not docile. He is not all that accommodating. He tends to be wild. He tends to be creative. He tends to be imaginative. He tends to do things that we could never have seen coming. So we don't want to presume that we have him figured out. In fact, his ferocious love for you will lead you down any number of unexpected paths, including to a few Egypts of your own. So God, yeah, he's at work for your good, but probably not in the way that you might expect. So if you think you know what he's up to in your life, just be careful, be careful. Secondly, though, a second application that flows flows from this principle is um, if you have no idea what he's up to in your life, then be encouraged. If you have no idea what he's up to in your life, then be encouraged. Most of us can look back on times in life when life went down unexpected paths. And that's perhaps where you find yourself today. Perhaps you feel like you're moving away from the promised land. You're on your way to Egypt in your job or in your marriage or in some other area of your life. You don't know what God is doing. But the end of this story needs to give us confidence. Because God would, in fact, raise up a leader, Moses who would take them out of the land of slavery, who would lead them back to the promised land, and then later they would be led into the promised land itself. When the story is told, we see that God knew what he was doing, and he did work it all together for good. And believers in Jesus Christ know that he's doing the same thing for us. He has raised up this other leader, Jesus, who has led us out of our spiritual slavery and who now, even now, is leading us toward the promised land. And as we can trust him with our salvation, so we must trust him with our lives. Even when we go down 
these unexpected paths. The ferocious love that's worked our salvation continues to govern our lives. And so we don't need to doubt God. When we do, the gospel comes and tells us that, that we're wrong to. <laughs> that how will he who gave his own son up for us not also along with him graciously give us all things? Or perhaps when we're doubting not God but ourselves, maybe is, is God not at work in your life because he's displeased with you? Is God not at work in your life because you haven't, you haven't sort of merited his favor? Well, again, the gospel comes and tells us that, that we're wrong. That he does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. In the gospel, we can be assured that he does know what he's doing, that he does know what he's up to, and when the story's told, we'll see how he's been at work for our good. You know, it makes me think of um, flying home to Scotland. You know one of the weird things you do when you fly to Scotland? You fly right over Scotland, and you land in Paris or Amsterdam or Frankfurt, or worst, England, right? (laughs) Now, when I land, I don't say, Lord, what are you doing with my life? Why I'm in France, or Holland, or Germany, or purgatory. (laughs) (laughs) What what are these ways? Why don't I do that? Well, I do that because I know I'm at a hub airport, and that I'm on my way to the promised land. Well, listen, our God is the God of hub airports. Okay. He's the God of hub airports. He rarely flies us direct. He nearly always takes us on somewhat convoluted journeys to places we'd never have thought of, to places that we've never been, to strange and foreign lands where we don't understand the language or the culture. But he does that in order to take us then to the true and greater promised land. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's up to. We can trust him. The route might not make sense, but in the end, it always takes us home. Now, what this calls for, friends, from believers in Jesus Christ, is that we would believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) This calls for a depth of trust that goes beyond 101 Christianity. Because, you know, Jesus didn't live and die before bursting forth again from the grave in order to give you a convenient life. He didn't do this so that we all might get to go to the college we want and all might get the job that we were looking for and all live in nice middle to upper class comfort for the rest of our days. The gospel isn't about coming through on the American dream. Jesus lived and died and burst from the grave that he might do something much more profound than that. Not turn us into a nice group of people who open doors and walk old ladies across the road, but that he might turn us into a new humanity in his image. That the deep parts of who we are would become more like Christ, more like what he always intended for us to be. And that we would flourish as we live life before him. But in order for that to happen, in order for us not just to be a surfacey, superficial kind of people, he often has to take us through Egypt. 
I know that's true for me. There's there's a darkness in my life. There's sin in my life. There's hard edges in my life. And there's a a lack of tenderness and compassion and gentleness. All these things that he needs to grow in me. He can't do that by giving me, you know, plain sailing. We learn these things. We grow. We mature as we go through Egypt. As we go through ups and downs and hard seasons. As we sit frustrated in the wrong airport. God is at work in our lives. And so we want to trust him. Believers, we want to believe. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our our faith. That when we have no idea what he's doing, we can still be encouraged. So that's our idea for the day. Yes, God's at work for your good, but probably not in the way you expect. If you don't know what he's up to, um, you know, be encouraged. If you think you do know what he's up to, be careful. But know that in the end, we'll see, after God is done with all his mixing, after God is done with all his baking, he is working something in us that is much better than biscuits. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we believe, and so we ask that you would help our unbelief. We believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, that we can come to him this morning just as we are, exactly as we are, and find forgiveness full and free, and then find, Lord, that this same love that saved us is active in our lives to change us and shape us into all that you have intended for us to be. But we recognize, Lord, that this creation of a new humanity within us and within us as a community um, won't take place when the, the road is easy. It'll occur as you lead us through ups and downs, through challenges, through joys, through sorrows, as we figure out what it means to follow you. And in all these things, we find that we do become more like your son. So, Lord, uh, give us faith to believe that you are at work for a good even when we don't know what you're doing. Um, Give us uh, trust in you and you alone. And we recognize you're worthy of it. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.